I want to start this morning by asking you a question. Are you the gambling type? Some of you may be absolutely, you are the gambling type. You have that thrill of risk, uh, the thrill of trying to make things happen. Now, I'm not exactly suggesting or saying, I'm not equating this completely to, you know, did you have money on any of the UFC fights last night? That's not the question. Uh, I had to happen to sit with a, a group of fellows watching some of those uh, events and sporting events take place, and there were different notes that would come up, and as you know, the gambling scene on sports has become more and more uh, obvious. It was things that happened kind of behind the scenes in a lot of, uh, of contexts, but now uh, odds are coming up on your screen while you're watching football games taking place during fights, so the changes, percentages are changing, changing, and odds are changing, and all those sorts of things, and you know, I watched last night, a little note came up, and it would give some stats. There was someone who had bet on one of those fights. This was a very uh, intriguing and scary thing to me, but a person had put over $15,000 on the underdog. To me, that's a large amount to be gambling. You know, a $15,000 bet on the underdog is quite a good bit to bet. Well, it's not the only thing that we do when it comes to gambling. Like, sometimes we make decisions that are a bit gambling. I can remember, uh, in, especially in my younger years, many of you may remember me talking about this in the past. I worked uh, and, and owned a company where I cut down trees, especially high-risk trees, rigged things out with ropes, uh, would run lines out so we could get uh, trees off of property without touching the ground very much. There were a lot of things I remember taking tree taking limbs out that were hanging over very expensive properties and barns and all sorts of structures and doing those sorts of things and I have to tell you I do not consider myself a gambling person because I'll be quite honest with you I don't like the chance of making more money at the chance of losing what I have I guess I'm more of a safety person when it comes to the financial side but yet on the other side I absolutely am a gambler like Absolutely. I remember making cuts in trees, hoping that my ropes would hold. You know, I remember swinging limbs out, thinking I'm going to trust in this. And it was a gamble at every turn that like this would work out the way I wanted to. As a matter of fact, I would say I'm probably a gambler as well when it comes to things like how I spend my time, how I think about life, maybe even how I parent. I mean, in many ways, you're parenting, whether you are parenting uh, teenagers today, children today, or you're still parenting adults today, it's a little bit of a gamble, right? You're imploring uh, certain, certain ideas, uh, concepts, and, and structures in hopes that they work. And when will you find out if they work? When it's too late. You, you've already done whatever's been done. You know what I mean? You're, you're working through and trying to make those things, you know, and trying to give guidance and direction, or you have a certain maybe structure for things. And then my guess is this morning, you've made decisions about how to set up this life. And in the grand scheme of things, I would say this morning, though we may not recognize or, or note within ourselves that like we are gambling people from a money standpoint, there are still risks that we take. There are still gambles that we take about, about what's right. And so this morning, one of the things that concerns me is... You know, our, our way of setting up how we do life. Go back with me for just a second and think about when Jesus arrived on the scene, when Jesus was born and was, and was arriving, how many people recognized him for who he was? I, I would have to say a handful. I mean, not, not very many. I mean, like his life, and the crazy thing is, he was about 400 years after we read about the prophets and in a long series of things were pointing toward a Messiah arriving. And one of the things that kind of concerns me in this, like how we have decided to set up our life, how we've decided to structure how we do things, those sorts of things, one of the things that concerns me is if the people who saw Jesus walking the earth were only 400 years removed from the prophets, 
and we are now 2,000 years removed from Jesus, is that not a bit of a concern to you? I mean, in 400 years they didn't recognize who Jesus was, and we're now 2,000 years from Jesus. Like, there's this part of me that starts thinking like, maybe we, maybe we need to be very attentive and very intentional about how we structure this life that we're living because the people who were not that far from the prophets were so far off base they didn't recognize Jesus and now we're some five times further than the prophets and so maybe this morning we start asking the question of man are we doing these things that we do in life are we living in such a way that is more based on biblical and godly example or are we more living life and doing the structures of life based on maybe what we see around us it's a quandary that we find ourselves in, and maybe this morning as we read in a passage, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3 with me this morning. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built in the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to, to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense in the high places. Now you read this story, and a couple things kind of put him in note. This is uh, after David's uh, lineage, after David uh, uh, leading and all of the great successes that we learn about that and read about that, right? But he started setting up the, the way that he would do life. And my question for you is this. I mean, one of the first things about this is that he made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he married one of Pharaoh's daughters. So why would he marry one of Pharaoh's daughters? That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, think with me in the story. We don't exactly have a great relationship, the people of God and the Egyptians. Things have not always been peaceful in that. You know, like there's, there's some stories here that go along with this. And so it doesn't really seem right. So why would you marry the king of Egypt's daughter. As a matter of fact, if you look back a little bit further and we do more research, this wasn't Solomon's only wife from other places. Okay? He had hundreds. Hundreds, which is a wild thing for us to think about. And number one, understand there's a biblical, ex there's a, a biblical existence that is very different from the New Testament existence that we're living today when it comes to these sorts of conversations. But when you read about him, one of the things that you're seeing is that well, he was really doing, he was really making smart business decisions. I mean, why would nations interchange between daughters and handing daughters in marriage and relationships? Because they were less likely to attack each other. You know what I mean? Like, there's a peace offering that's being given here. And in some ways, this is a bit of a, of a business decision that he's making. Married daughters oftentimes keep peace. He ends up marrying people to, to very different areas. And I want to say this morning, like, he's understanding marriage based on what is normal for him. You know, wait, based on what is normal. And because this morning I'm kind of calling into question and asking, like, do you think we, do you think we adopt understandings of marriage that are normal for how we see marriage here on earth and yet maybe not normal for what God was intending? Our minds probably go to lots of different places, so let me be a little bit more direct in pointing us in one specific area. Have you ever said to someone who was getting married into the family and you said, welcome to our family? That's a good statement, isn't it? Welcome to our family. Have you ever considered that from a biblical application? Are you really welcoming someone into your family? Is that what marriage is about? That now you are a part of us? 
I mean, it's great intentions, isn't it? Because we like, we like, we say around the ECN family all the time, like a part of the family. There's great connotation to this. But, but think about this from a biblical understanding. Go with me for just a second. I'll read another passage to you here. Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read that the beginning, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And then those two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Very interesting that Jesus' words in this setting are about man and woman separating, becoming one. They are now no longer A and B. They are the own entity of C. And I find it interesting that Jesus includes in that, now let no one try to separate that. Because sometimes very unintentionally, we say you're now a part of our family. And we would be lying to ourselves to say that being a part of our family doesn't come with certain strings and expectations of how things should work, of where you should be. How many of you have been young married and the quandary was, what place do we show up for Christmas? Where do we go for Thanksgiving? How many of you have driven hundreds of miles on the day we celebrate Jesus' birth so that we can keep our families happy? Me and Stephanie are the only two. Okay, well, all right. Let me just tell you. <laughs> I appreciate her candor and her honesty here. Like, we've driven hundreds of miles to be in those places. And you know why? It wasn't necessarily, I didn't, I don't think back and feel like that my parents or her parents or anyone was putting a thumb on us, but there was this obligation that, like, we need to make all those other entities happy because now we're a part of their family. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We may be crippling our married couples by making statements about now you're a part of us. No, no, no. Now we acknowledge you are your own entity, and if you decide to spend Christmas with us, we will be happy to see you. Hear the difference? You are your own entity now. You understand? Like, it's a hard thing to let go of, but biblically, it is not that you are becoming a part of us, that you're joining us. No, no, no. Biblically, you two, as the part of this family, this family, are coming together and creating one. It's a very different understanding. I'm, I'm here to say this morning, it may be that we understand things more based in how our world lives and, in the, and maybe some good-natured even things that we do, more so than biblical understanding. So look back with me for just a second, back to this story. You would see in, the, in, in Solomon's existence that he marries, but it wasn't just, you know, this is a good business decision. And yet, how does it pay off for him? There's a couple of other passages that talk about this. 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. His wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord and his God, as the heart of David, who was his father, had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. You continue on, and Nehemiah speaks back, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon king of Israel sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all, Eve, all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Now you read these stories, and one of the things you need to note is Solomon is doing what is normal in his existence for a king. 
And yet what is normal in his existence for a king is not what God wanted him to do. It's not how God wanted him to live. So we need to start asking this, these good questions of what constructs may we be living in, though we may accept them as normal, they're just flat out not biblical. Very easily stated, like you're, when my children and if they decide to get married somewhere down the road, that's a very easy analogy. They're not joining the Metters family. Yes, someone may get the Metters last name, but that, they're still their own entity. And, like, and I need to see them that way. You go a little bit further into this, and this is not the only place that Solomon's having a little bit of struggle working through the world that he's living in and working through like how things are normal and how they are to be understood, how things are to be operated. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings chapter 3, this story continues. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. Remember, this is back where we started. This is a continuation of that first passage we read. For that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, Ask for whatever you want to give for me to give to you. And Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, this is Solomon acknowledging the goodness of God, but one of the things that you need to acknowledge in this is where is he? Where is he when he is doing this? Very fascinating that he finds himself worshiping in something called the high places. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that we see in, in numerous other texts and other passages things that are referencing the high places, and they don't speak to those high places as, as complimentary of where he should be. As a matter of fact, read the way this is verbalized. He had, he had done these things, but he was doing them in the high places, as if that's not where he was supposed to be as if this is not the intentionality of like where, what God wanted for God wanted him to be in the sacrificing and the giving and the worshiping. Folks, one of the things to recognize in this is that you would be quick to note, if you were wanted to study kind of the timeline here, the temple had not been completed when this was written, all right? Yet there was a place called, a, as we would call it in English today, a sanctuary where God had given clear instructions that this is where you are to go and worship. And yet Solomon finds himself in the high places. And so my question for you is, why is the high places seen as a negative and, and why do the high places matter? One of the reasons is the high places that they had moved into were known for pagan god worship. They were known for that. This is the places that you go to worship pagan gods. And some of us in our modern uh, way of thinking and in some things that I've even seen within the church, some things that we would say is like, well, then it's probably good that Solomon was taking over those high places and turning them back into places for God, turning them back into places for the one true God. I hear you trying to rationalize and trying to justify what Solomon's doing, but it's very clear in this that God is not happy that he is going to worship in the high places, even if he's doing it in a way that he thinks is a good idea. You understand, like, even if he thinks this is a solid, good plan, it may not be what God wants him to do. Folks, I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes if even in our best of intentions, we don't start making decisions about what we want to do for God because we see it as good, and God looks down at us and sees, why are you making decisions about what you think are good for me? I've, I've told you what to do. I've told you how to do this life. And, and why would you think that you need to come up with creative or different ways to do that which I've already told you to do? Like, this is the, the life that you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to live it. And, and I know that sometimes even in Solomon's existence, can you imagine Solomon thinking about where could he go to worship? And the high places sounds like a good idea. As a matter of fact, I would imagine most of you in this room have had experiences where you see something beautiful 
and you think about the creation and just how awesome God is. Amen? Folks, I left the football scrimmage game in Houston County this past Friday. Had a chance to go over there and watch. And I'm going to tell you what, in some ways, watching high school football in the South is a ton of fun. It is not much fun in late August, by the way. I think that was a bad idea. We need to move football back another month. All right? Like, let's just go ahead and talk about that. I feel like we got enough people. We need to talk to just move football back a month. Because I'm going to tell you what, I don't know what the heat index was. Me and Stephanie talk about the difference between, like, actual temperature. I think the actual temperature was 96, and the heat index was, like, 147. Okay, like it was horrible. I left feeling like I sat in a crock pot for the last hour. Okay, like it was awful, awful, super hot, super muggy. The reason people like folks that move here that have never lived here before and when they talk about how awesome it is in March and April, we're always like those like wait till August, just survive August and then you'll be okay. Like that's the miserable month. Right. But as I walked away from that football game, I didn't remember that the sun sets directly across the baseball field into the distance over the high school. Folks. It was one of the most beautiful, vibrant, gorgeous places. And in my mind, I saw this. And of course, I see things through preacher lenses. I've been doing this more of my life and I have not at this point in the game. But through my preacher lenses and my, my, my pastor, I look across this setting and I'm like, this is an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous setting. I mean, how many times have you said, thank you, God, for this opportunity of being able to enjoy this? It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. You want to add to it even more? It represents part of my childhood that I look back with incredibly fond memories. Football field behind me, the sun setting across a baseball field. Come on. We should worship there. Amen? Sometimes we come up with great ideas and we justify things in our minds of where we should be worshiping because it sounds like such a good idea. And God very simply is, but I have told you. In Deuteronomy, there's specific instructions of building this, this sanctuary and then later on, Solomon would build a temple. So why in the world is Solomon now finding himself in these other high places, even sacrificing to his God? Like, look, I'm tell there's some beautiful places. And, and, and what's sad is we in our 2023 existence begin to justify our high places. Our high places become other places on Sunday mornings than walking in to be a part of corporate worship like we understand God has commanded us to be a part of. But in our minds, we start justifying how many Sundays a year do I need to be there? How many Sundays a year can I be somewhere else? Folks start thinking with me about how we decide how to worship. I know God gave you all some, in, some incredibly creative and productive and, and great thoughts to go on in your minds, but just because you come up with a pretty idea doesn't mean that's what God wants from you. Do you understand? He's given you direction on how to do life. And just because you come up with something that may sound prettier or sound better, we have to be very cautious that we're not doing things because we've justified or think that this is a good idea. When, as we look back in Solomon's story, even though he could have seen this as a, as a good idea of taking over the high places and giving, giving offering and, and, and sacrifices in those places, it doesn't matter if he thinks it's a good idea. It's what God wants him to do. Folks, what matters is, is, is what God wants us to do, not what ideas we come up with. It doesn't really matter what makes sense to us. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's keeping us from being very holy people is that we act like God has to be something that bows down to what our thoughts are. It keeps us from being holy because we want God to fit into our box as opposed to us trying to become more like Christ. Do you understand the difference? It's a difference between we want God to sound good in the way things that make, make our minds at peace with who He is and us wanting to become the person that He's calling us to be, to become more Christ-like, to live a, a life that is more Christ-like in its existence. 
I know that we make rationalizations often about how we do things called church, how we, how we live out this life. But at the end of the day, it matters more about how God wants us to do these things than how we think we can or should do them. God's opinion matters infinitely more. I'm reminded of a time when I was a kid running around the house, and this may be something that's familiar to many of you as well. I can remember when my mom would say something to the effect of, go clean your room. Uh, some of you are in the throes of life right now where you probably have kids in your house or uh, maybe grandkids even that uh, have a way of creating a mess. It is amazing to me how ni nice, neat, and tidy uh, kids can be or can have their room, and within a matter of minutes, it looks like a tornado touchdown. Now, I happen to know how that happens. I figured it out because I am that tornado at 42 years old. I still do it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand my own how There are times when I walk in and I'm like, who left my boots over here? Why are my keys over there? You know, I do those sorts of things all the time. But, but it's amazing to me when I was a kid and my mom would say, like, clean your room. I remember the few times that I heard her suggestion and thought that I might work her desires into my schedule. You understand? And mom would say things like, son, this wasn't a request. I'm not asking you to find time for it. Clean your room now. You understand? Like, I want you to do this now. And, and there's a very good lesson to be learned. As a matter of fact, some of you parents who have high expectations for your kids to do what you say when you say it, you are actually setting tone for them in the nature of how they see God for the rest of their lives. One of the things from years of ministry experience, still dominantly my professional career has been spent in youth ministry. And I'm telling you time and time again, your kids will define how they see God based on how you parent them. It's one of the most important, one of the most defining, and one of the most formative aspects of how they see God. And so if you want your children to do what God says, even when it might not make sense or fit into their schedule, then that's part of the task of being a parent. It's part of the task, is that you have expectations and clear expectations, and you set those up for your kids. You see, what we're doing as parenting is imaging God to our children in a lot of ways. And the reality is your children will grow up with an identity and they'll base their identity first on who God is based on you. It's a scary thing to think about, amen? Scary thing, but it's a reality. One of the things that this passage, when we're reading about this individual and the, the pitfalls that he fell into, makes us start asking very serious questions. If even Solomon, in how he worshiped, and how he went about being successful in the, in the position that he was put in. If in those things he still found himself in great pitfalls, in, in great mistakes, things that end up leading him into sin as we read in other passages, then it has to create within us a willingness to ask a couple of good questions. God, what things might I have justified as right in my mind? What things might I have adopted that are absolutely not the way that you want me to live, but I've made peace with them because I've seen other people living this life around me. Like that's, that's where my basis for how to do life has been formed because one of my concerns is we base how to do this life more on each other than we do the Word of God. We base our lives on what we see, not so much maybe what we read here. I mean, think for just a moment. How have you determined what it means to be a devout Christ follower? When I ask you what is a good Christian, my fear is that most of us would talk about the saints on this earth that we've seen that we have deemed as worth following, and we might not spend as much time talking about Christ Himself and what He did. You understand the difference? When we, when we put people as what we follow instead of putting Christ as what we follow? Like the question of, with what, what sort of frequency should we be in this house worshiping God? 
How many days do we justify staying at home and watching worship on television? How many days do we justify I'll just continue to to go down the road working and listen to my preacher on the radio? Let me tell you, if you're listening on the radio this morning, I'm incredibly grateful that you have chosen to listen for this 30-minute segment. But I'm here to tell you that's not the fullness of what God wants us in the experience of what it means to join together in worship. It is a portion, absolutely, but it's not the fullness of it. And yet sometimes convenience has led us into places where we may not be living into the fullness of what God is calling us and how He's calling us to live. How do you decide how much time you serve other people? And my guess is it's more based on the things around you, the people around you. How do you decide how much and if you should give? How do you decide how to treat your spouse? Heading into the next series in the next few weeks of getting ready for some folks that are going to be getting married who are from our church and we're having all sorts of good conversations that are in preparation for being married. And one of those things that we have to make peace with is the way you treat your spouse most times, at least my experience from a counseling profession is, most times is based on how you saw your parents treat their spouse. Not necessarily on a biblical understanding. Like I'm saying across the board, folks, Are we doing a good job defining our lives on the way that God would have us live? Or are we spending more of our time defining our lives on the world around us and the way that we see people live, even with good intentions? I mean, is this not the conundrum of humanity from the beginning? Do you remember remember when in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had messed up and they found themselves hiding from God and sewing together clothes with fig leaves and all that part of the story, Adam says back to God, We heard you coming through the garden and we were afraid because we were naked and we hid. Do you remember what God asked him? What was it? Who told you? Who who have you been listening to? Folks, that is the nature of of our human condition slash task slash like chore, if you will, is to work through what voices speak into how I do this life. And I think you have to be vulnerable enough from time to time to ask the questions, am I basing my existence more on what I see in people around me and how I want to live, or am I basing my existence more on on what the Bible tells me to do? Even some of the successful things that were going on in his time frame, if you want to be a successful king, you need to have wives from all these other places. You can choose to worship God wherever you want. Two huge lies that Solomon bought into. Huge lies. So how will we move forward knowing that we want to be the people, we want to be people that are living a Christ-like example, they're, they're living, that's a, that's a very troubling place for us to be. So the next question is like, well then how do we make sure that we're setting ourselves on the right course, that we're parenting well, that we're, that we're being good spouses, that we're being good citizens, that we're being good people, that in the midst of all that is enveloped in are we being Christ-like in this life? And so I, I feel like as we work through this kind of conundrum that Solomon's working through, we then get to the, the final section of this scripture that is one of the most beautiful beautiful kind of closings for us. And it it answers so many questions. And so we move on and we read these words. Now, Lord, my God, you have made me your servant and king in the place of my father, David. This is Solomon responding. Remember that dream that we just read, that time when God was asking him? He says, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my responsibilities. Let me pause for just a moment and tell you, humility is step one in learning. Humility is step one. Anytime you learn a new lesson, folks, we are, we are a church full of educators. Educators that understand in order to learn, you have to submit that you do not know something. 
Understand? You have to submit. I do not know this, so I need to learn it. And that, that means a place of humility. I am only a child, and I do not know how to carry out my responsibilities or my duties in this passage. Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count. And so here's his request. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. How will we be people who live out a Christ-like existence on this earth. It will only be accomplished by us acknowledging this place where Solomon was and living accordingly in a place of humbly submitting ourselves before God and saying, God, please give me wisdom. 